for that testimony, Gina. It goes right in with what we're talking about this morning. You'll see the slide. It says, Making of a Legacy. And uh, we'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So we'll get back to Galatians right after VBS. But uh, today, you know, thinking about the set that I would have behind me and all the stuff going on, I thought it would be really good for us to talk about a legacy and talk about the next generation. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. You know, life goes through a lot of different stages. Um, typically people, they plot out, you know, if you get on the internet and you look around like life stages, you can get like six life stages all the way up to like 12 or more life stages, you know. And, so I just picked one arbitrarily. There's, there's no reason that I picked the one I picked, but it had eight. So I'll give you, I was like, I'll get the one in the middle. Maybe that'll be good. Um, so here's kind of what we, we see just in life in general, the different stages of life. Uh, infancy is the first one, and that's from the moment of, of we would say from conception, but being born uh, through 18 months is infancy. And then from there, they, they get a little bigger and they get mobile and they start toddling around. So you got toddlerhood. Uh, that's 18 months to up to three years. And three years goes by in a flash. You're just like, wow, how old are you now? You're three? And it's like, yeah. And they're in the preschool years. That's the third one. From three years to five years. And at that point, when they hit around five, you're thinking, when do you get to start school? I can't wait, you know? And they hit the fourth stage, which is the early school years. So they start off on that journey of five years to 12 years of age. Yes, so if you're under 12, 12 and under, you're in the early school years. Because I know 12-year-olds are like, I'm almost a teen. Like, there's a teen on the end. Like, I'm 12 and a half. Right, okay. Anyway, I digress. Then you get into the adolescence. Uh, that's from 12 to 18. So you 18-year-olds are like, hold up, man. I'm not an adolescent. Come on. Like, I'm an adult. <laughs> but that's that stage of life. From 12 years up through about 18 years of age. But 18 also carries over into young adulthood. So young adulthood goes from 18 to 40. <laughs> I like that range. You know, like... Young adult, like, can we push that out to, like, 46? Because that's where I am. Like, can we? Nope, I've hit the next one. So young adulthood is 18 to 40. And that, I'm in middle adulthood. That's where I am. Age 40 to 65. And then you have late adulthood, 65 and on. So that's typically the different stages. And when we think about the stages of life, we we think more about the stage we just came out of and all the things we should have done or could have done or, oh, it would have been best. And, and it, you know, when you're young, when you're really young, you really don't think about those stages. You, you're always looking to the one ahead. You're like, I can't wait to get to the next one. And then it's about when you hit that young adult, middle adult stage, 40, 18 to 40, young adult. I think I was in my 30s. I was thinking about my 20s. You know, I was like, man, if I had just, if I could have only, you know, I start, you start looking back a little bit when you hit those stages. But I want us to take a moment, because we're talking about legacy. I want us to take a moment and just think together about 
late adulthood, the end stages, and put in context where we are, wherever you are today. Because the, the reality is, wherever you are right now, you are in the process of building a legacy. Each and every one of us are in that process of, of building and leaving a legacy. And so as people move into late adulthood, typically uh, their thoughts tend to shift a little bit about what has my life consisted of? Like, what have I done with all the years that I've had? What good things have I experienced? And, we, and they remember all those beautiful blessings and all the great things. And then they'll also remember some of those hard things that they have come through. But they think about, what has my life consisted of? What are those experiences? What have I accomplished? And most importantly, there's that question, what legacy will I leave? What will be of all of this when I'm gone? What will become of the things that I poured my life into? And as King Solomon said, vanity of vanities, why does it matter? Like, if I'm looking into these things and it's going to be gone, why am I pouring my life into this? At one point, Solomon says, I've accumulated all this wealth and all this wisdom and all this stuff. And, and it's like, you have a garden, I have a forest. You have a house, I have a palace. You have this, I have it even better. And in the end, he says, i got to leave it to a worthless person. Why am I working for all of this? What is the point? He asked that question in Ecclesiastes. Like, what is the point? Well, we're going to answer that today. What's the point? Well, it's about leaving a legacy. John Piper, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, you've probably heard of that book. Many of you have probably read that book. Um, but he, he says that you and I are being tempted to invest our lives in the temporal things. Like right now, if you think about all that's going on around you, you are being bombarded by messages that are saying to you, invest your life in the here and now. Have the good life now. Like go after this. Put this in your life and you will have joy and meaning and purpose. We are being tempted from all different sides to invest in temporal things. In fact, there's billions, with a B, billions of dollars spent every year for you and I to focus our heart and our attention and to embrace a philosophy of life that focuses on the here and now. Let me think about it. That's our day-to-day. -day. Like, we are bombarded to buy into something that is lesser than what God would give you. To buy into a lesser glory. To buy into something that is here today and gone tomorrow. Is that what you're going to put your life into? Is that what you're going to pour your life into? Chasing things in the temporal here and now. If we're not careful, we'll make our ultimate goals... John Piper says this. He says, if we're not careful, we'll make our ultimate goals a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement with a nice comfortable death. Is that what you want? Is that really what you want? 
he was saying this uh, to actually to a bunch of young people in a, in a sermon talking about this. And he said, the reality is that hundreds of you in front of me today don't give a rip about what your legacy will be. You just want to be comfortable and have fun on the way. He said, that's a tragedy in the making. And I would agree with him. Now, these things that I've just mentioned, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, nice retirement, like all of those, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, praise God for the blessings that we have. This world is full of blessings for us to enjoy. So don't hear me saying, like, if you have all this stuff, you're not following Jesus. No, I'm just saying, don't make them your ultimate goal. There's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But if they become ultimate things, if they become the things that give you meaning, that give you your identity, then they have become idols. And we, even if we profess the name of Jesus, if they have become our idols, then we have become hedonists, meaning living for the pleasure of the moment, living for self-fulfilled desires, and we're not living as children of God, living to glorify God and finding meaning and joy in Him. So think about your life for a moment. How, how are you living? What are you living for? If you lose your job or possessions or standing or status, will you be crushed? I grew up uh, in sports around sports all through college, and to watch young men lose their sport, either they just don't make the cut to go to the next level, or they have a devastating injury, and they walk around thinking, who am I now? I'm no longer this guy. I've always been this guy. Who am I? Young professionals in the work world, successful businessmen, they lose their job and they're like, who am I now? What do I do? We think about men typically going through that midlife crisis and they have to buy the fancy sports car. If you have one, I would just love to drive it. That, that'd be enough. <laughs> I'm not going to buy one. But why do they do that? Because they're searching for something with meaning, something different. It's like, I poured my life into this and what am I doing? Maybe joy is found in something else. I'm going to go and live this way now. They have that crisis. A crisis of belief. A crisis of identity. We all live for something. God has put eternity in each of our souls. Because we are to live for Him. He created you. He created you to have a relationship with Him. And so when we make the good things of this world ultimate things, and that becomes our meaning and our identity, we're setting our life up for tragedy. So how do we rightly align our life? How do we rightly align our life so that when we are at the end, when we get to that last stage, and we've poured every ounce of our energy and our life into eternal things, we will know it's not wasted. How do, we, how do we do that? Well, Deuteronomy 6 is going to help us. Deuteronomy 6, if you have your Bible, you can 
open there, or it'll be on the screen. I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it. I have this one on the back. You can kind of turn over your shoulder. But Deuteronomy 6, and if you have the pew Bible in the chair, pew, oh my gosh. I am old, I know. I came out of an old church. Okay, uh, Deuteronomy 6 is found on page uh, 151 in the Black Bible, if that's what you're looking at. This is what Moses writes to the Israelites, and he wants them to remember this whole book of Deuteronomy is a remembrance. It's to remind them before they go into the promised land. He wants to say all these things to them because Moses doesn't get to go in. He has to stay out. God says, you will not enter in. You will die with this generation. The next generation will go in. So he says, I want the next generation to know the Lord and to remember all of his goodness and remember everything. So I'm writing this book to them and I'm telling them all of these things to that they will treasure it and take, them with, take it with them. So we get into chapter 6, starting in verse 4, going through verse uh, 9, I believe, is, is where I'm stopping here today. He says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. He says in verse 4, he says, hear, listen, pay attention. I, I remember being in school and like the teachers always had their different ways of getting attention, you know, like some of us had the fun teacher who always had that fun clapping game and everybody's like trying to, oh, oh, oh she's doing the clap thing, I gotta do, you have to match the clapping pattern, you know, and I, you know, I never had the fun, my, I always had the fun teacher stood up front and was like, <laughs> giving you that look like, if I could, I would knock you out of your chair right now. You know, and then everybody was like, whoa, hold up. You know, like, teacher's getting ready to say something. Like, she wants our attention. If you're that teacher, I'm sorry. I apologize. You're probably not mean. <laughs> that was my teacher. But Moses wants their attention. He's like, hey, listen up. I got something to tell you. And it's so important. You can't miss this. He says, I want you to, to set all of your consideration on what is about to be said to you. Well, he says that to Israel because he knows they're about to go into the promised land, but, but this is here for us, and God is speaking to us through the scriptures as well. So he's saying to you and me today, hey, listen up. I got something for you to, to put your attention on, to, to, to listen carefully to Moses in verse 1 through 3 here, he's saying that it's a commandment. Like, I'm going to give you these commandments, these rules, these things that God wants us to walk in and live in. And he says, I want you to listen. And he doesn't give that in this passage that we just read, but he's, he's getting their attention. And he wants them to be really engaged. So where does he start? Verses 4 and 5 again, he says, 
says to them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He says, Shema Israel, Yahweh Elohinu, Yahweh Echad. Listen, Yahweh, our God, his name shows up twice here. The Lord is how we read it in English. He says, the Lord, the living God, the God above all gods who created all things. Yahweh, Elohenu. Is the, so the word Elohim is a plural word for God, and there's other Elohims in the Old Testament, and it's not describing attributes or standing or anything. It's just that word for God that they have, but he's saying, of all the gods, this is the God. He is over all. Yahweh, the God of all gods, the Elohinu, Yahweh, his name. He gives us his name twice because he's different. He is, he is the God who is enthroned above all things. He's saying, listen, our God is one. He, this word, echad, meaning one, it's a plurality. Here's where, you know, people argue, you know, Christians have three gods. And we say, no, we have one God who's manifest in three persons. We see this as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's unified. He's one. And maybe it's better said that there's a compound unity. There's a word for one in the Hebrew that just means singular. You know, like one book, one pencil. But, but that's not this word. Ichad is is a word that means a compound plurality that makes one, brings a unity. So he says this of God, Yahweh is one. And then there, we see this word used in other places to give us this idea as well. Genesis 1.5, it says this, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. A day, one. This, there's day and night. There's one day. There's Two things compound together as one day. One day. You have one day. It's night and day, but it makes one. Genesis 2, 4, he says this. He says, there are, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when, when they were created. In the day of the Lord, God made the earth and the heavens. So this one day, and I, I think I gave you the wrong passage because I'm looking at this about Adam and Eve. <laughs> they were one flesh. The two were made one flesh. It uses that same word. I'm going to have to go back and look at where I was looking. Um, man and woman coming together, two, becoming one flesh. Ahad. Think about your marriage that way. You are one. You are ahad, just as God is. He created you to reflect him. He is one. You are one with your spouse. Exodus 26.6 talks about the, about the uh, tents of meeting, the tabernacle. And he says, And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other, the, the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. That it may be echad, that it may be one. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting is one, made of many parts, consisting of one unique thing. Ezekiel 37, 17, you see it here as well. Uh, Ezekiel has two sticks they're supposed to join together, and it's actually the rejoining of, 
of Israel back into one. They're supposed to, it's symbolic of that. And he says, and join them one to another into one stick that they may become one in your hand. This idea of one people together. So we see that he's spoken of in this way, that God has spoken of in this way. And I've shown this video before. Uh, it's St. Patrick's Bad Analogies on the Trinity. So it's a little bit of satire. It's, it's uh, trying to bring a little bit of levity to this conversation. What is, what is Trinity? How do we understand it? And so uh, if you've seen it, just enjoy it. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I think you'll find it uh, very enjoyable. But this is how we have tried over the years to understand how to explain that God is one. And so watch this video real quick. If you can, I don't know. You can watch it on the back too. Yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid, ice, and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick. What? Mortalism. Ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Contact No. 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Get together, Patrick! Okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star, and the light and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. Reverse, Patrick. Alright, sorry. The Trinity is like. Uh, this three-leaf clover. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partial? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot iron powers merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously. Uh, of course, yeah, it's not going to exist for another 1500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, it was a program, Patrick. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an Moralism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an hour. So there's a revisit. Fine. Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the 
persons or divine substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that? (laughs) (laughs) So what's the point? The point is that God is other. He is unique. He is other, and because of who he is, Moses says that we respond to him by loving the Lord with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our might. So I want to look at these three words. First is heart. Heart is the inner man with all his thoughts, all of his affections, his will, and his mind. He says, so so love God with that inner man, that inner woman. He says, love God with your thoughts and your affections, your will and your mind. And then couple that to your soul. And the soul is your very being. My life, my myself, my person, my desire, my appetites, my emotion and passion. So with all of my thoughts and affections and will of the mind and my very self, my desires, my appetites, my emotions, my passions, I love God with all of that. But it, he doesn't just stop. He says, but do it also with all of your strength, or with all of your might. That means force with all that I can muster within me. All that is pressed to exceedingly great exertion or exceedingly great degree. So with all the strength I have, with all that I can muster within me, I love God with all of my soul, all of my desires, my affections, with my my heart, with my thoughts and my will and my mind. I love Him with all of it as passionately and as strongly as I can. That's how I am to respond to him. We all fall short of the glory of God, don't we? As I was thinking about what he was saying to us, how we are to love God, I, uh, okay, I went to like, you know, those, those movies that I like to watch with my wife. I like them, like persuasion and stuff like that. And I was thinking about, there's usually a moment in those, those writings uh, where the man just says, I love you. But he doesn't just say, I love you. Like, that's what we do today. We're like, I love you, man. I love you. Right? That's it. But back then, it was like, I love you with all that I am. All that is within me with my whole being, with every waking moment, with anticipation, with my imagination. All that I am loves all that you are. That's a nice sentiment, right? It's like, those are the kind of things that that you read. That's how we are to love God, but even more. (laughs) So when we're talking about a legacy, it starts with your relationship with God. I mean, if we're thinking about the next generation and leaving a legacy and doing all these things and pouring into things that matter, it starts with your relationship with God. That's where it begins. 
loving God, knowing God, walking with God. Like my identity is set in Him because of the affections He's given to me. I love Him. And the more I love Him, the more I look towards Him, the more passionate I am about Him, the more that just overflows on those around me. You want to leave a legacy, start by loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When new life comes, new relationship and new ways of living come, God is our Father and we are His children. So in the book of 1 John Chapter 4, verse 19, we read this. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We've received the affection of the Father through the Son and the power of the Spirit poured into our hearts. He's loved us with all that he is and it didn't have anything to do with you. God loved you fully because he is God. And that's how he loves. You didn't have to do anything. He just poured his affection out on you and sent his son for you. And the spirit wooed you and called you to him. And as you responded, he says, you are now my son, you are now my daughter. That is standing, that is identity. It doesn't matter, God is my father. To think about that. God is my father. I am his child. No matter what happens in this life, no matter what happens in those stages of life that I go through, I have him. He is the greatest treasure. And I am secure. I am held. I have his affection, and I had to do nothing to receive it except receive it. I didn't have to earn it. I didn't have to do anything. And so when I press into life, I have the love of the Father poured out into my heart by the power of the Spirit because what Christ has done, and I didn't have to do anything for it except say, Abba, Daddy. We are being called into relationship. Now, he's speaking to us in this passage, in two ways, both individually and as a people. He's saying to them, as a people, you should all love God with your heart, soul, mind, strength. But individually, you should do that the same. So he's calling us. Moses is saying this to us individually and as a people. So as the bridge... As the people of God who gather in this place, corporately, this is how we are to love God. We should look really peculiar to the world around us. Why do they get together and sing songs? It's not a rock concert. Why do they get up there and praise this Jesus? Why do they come together when they come from such a diverse background and different walks of life and different states. Like, I know some of those people, how do they even get along? Why do they get along? Why are they doing what they do? Someone who doesn't know the love of God 
if they walk into the Christian fellowship, if they walk into a moment of worship, should feel like this is weird, but this is absolutely wonderful at the same time. And I don't know what it is. And it's the presence of God with his people. They should say there's something unique here. And I know it's not these people. <laughs> what is it about this gathering that's different? It's relationship. Because we are coming together to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. And we give him worship. And he is among us. Why? Because he first loved us. So verses 6 through 9, we read this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down. And when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He tells us, <clears throat> excuse me, he tells us that we are to love God and his words, to put them into our heart. He's not saying this in a way to be legalistic. He's not saying, learn these things so you do the commands and God is happy. He's saying, no, God has loved you. He has poured his affection on you. He has made you his people. You're his sons. You're his daughters. And he is speaking to you. Treasure that love letter he has given you. Look at the things where he says, this is life and life abundant. This is what it looks like. You should read it and say, oh, I want to do that. Oh, I'm going to hide that in my heart. Why? Because I know I don't do this naturally. And then when you're in those moments, you say, God, help me understand this. Help me to live by this and let me have the joy that comes out of just loving you by fulfilling all that you've shown me. When we pray God's will, he says yes, by the way. When you're asking God, hey, God, will you help me keep your commands? He's like, no, no. He's like, yeah. Why? Because in the keeping of those things, he reveals himself. Why does he say to do what he asks us to do? Because he wants us to know him. He wants us to understand who he is, that he is a good father. And he says, as you live the way I call you to live, you and I will have a deeper relationship. So keep the commands. Know me. And as you know me, you will love me more. So we are to hide this word in our heart as we pour over them. And we then tell them to others. You ever, you ever do that? You, you learn something new and you just can't wait to tell everybody how smart you are? I'm that kind of guy. Like, I learn a little trivia thing or whatever. Be like, hey, right, guess what I learned that. Or, or I don't even make it like I learned it today. I, may, I bring it up like I've known this all along. Oh, yeah. Well, you know. You know, you can kind of do that thing, and people are like, man, how do you know all that? I'm like, well, I just read it in a book today, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you know, as, as we learn who God is, it should be our joy just to tell others. Guys, look how good God is. Look how he provided. Look how he showed himself to be faithful. Look, he says this in his word, and I'm experiencing it. You know, I didn't know it could be this good. It's been so long. But here, God is showing himself true. We tell others. 
We share with them. And who do you tell? Well, hopefully you start sharing in your household. You start sharing with them what you've experienced. You know, we want our kids and, our, and the kids in our community, meaning the bridge, and even outside of this place, in our community, meaning where we live, we want that next generation to know God and to love God. And if we're honest, we want our kids to know God and love God better than we know Him and love Him today. We're always like, I want them to go further than I've ever gone. I want them to know him better than I knew him. I want them to have more blessings than I had. Well, how do you do that? Well, you treasure him. You put his words in your heart. You start telling them. You start showing them what God's doing in your life. You live it out in front of them. So Moses is pointing to the next generation, and he's saying a true legacy is found in the eternal. What's the eternal? It's people. It's people. We are all eternal. This stuff, here today, gone tomorrow, will rust, it will disintegrate, it will be gone. Even the earth that we're on, Christ will recreate it. This earth isn't even going to last. This one will be changed. People are eternal. You want to leave a legacy, pour in to people. And leave a legacy that's eternal is by pouring into them about who God is and who Christ is. That they would know him, that they would savor him, that they would love him, that they would have a new identity, that they would know what it means to be a son or a daughter of the king. So Moses says, tell it to your family when you're rising up, when you're going out, when you're sitting down. And it's not just teach them the commandments. If we say teaching the next generation is found solely in programs and, and found in Bible study or whatever by itself, and it's, it's isolated, it's kind of in a vacuum, and discipleship is not in a vacuum. It's in relationship. But if we treat it that way, what do we do? We create Pharisees. Keep the law. Keep the commandments. It will go well with you. Do the right thing, be the right thing, say the right thing, act the right way. And kids are like, okay, and when I'm 18, I'm out. I'm done. Why? Because you didn't show me, God. You just told me how to behave. You gave me a a moralistic theology. What do they want? They want what all of us want. They want something real. Something that they can pour their life into something that they can be passionate about, that they can give their life for. What better than Jesus Christ? We pour our life into others saying, know the Lord as I have known him. As he is good to me, he can be good to you. And as he commands us to live, I'm I'm living those ways. You taste and see that the Lord is good. Live those ways. Walk with him. Legacy. Legacy. Is pouring into, is pouring our lives into the lives of others so that they come to know and love Christ and in turn pour their life out for God as an act of love. So people should see that Christ is near to our thoughts and the work of our hands and that he's a part of wherever we dwell. Read an article about a, uh, well, I didn't read it. Bethany wrote it and she sent it to me. It was in a, it was in a book. 
Sorry, it was in a book. Anyway, husband and wife building a house, and the wife went through every two by four and wrote scripture on all of them. And, all. and, and the thing was that it's going to get covered up. No one's ever going to see that. And it was like, well, why did she do it? It was a reminder to them as they were in the process of building this home that this home was for the Lord, that it was a blessing given to them, and that they wanted this place where they were dwelling to be his dwelling place, that he would have full reign over it. And so they wrote scripture on everything, even though they were going to cover it up. Why? Because as they were in the process, it just reminded them, this house is a blessing of the Lord to us, and this is his house not ours. It's his. And we have the privilege of living with him in this space. So people should see that. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 7, David writes this. Or actually, David doesn't. Uh, uh, Asaph writes this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Are you sharing the great works of God with those around you, with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors? Are you sharing the great testimony of the works of God? Not just the great works of what he's done in the scriptures. Sure, Share these as well. These are beautiful things. But he is working in your life. He's speaking to you today. He's doing things for you. Are you sharing the work of the Lord in your life with those around you, saying, look at how good God is, so that they will know him, and that they will share that testimony with their kids, and their kids will share it with their kids. You know, if my family never remembers my name three generations from now, if I'm just the, you know, oh, we had a preacher in the family, your great-great-great-grandfather, or whatever. If they don't remember me, but the legacy is that they're all following the Lord because of the testimonies that were given, all praise to Christ. Because it's not about me. It's about Him. It's sharing Christ with those around us, especially our children, so that they will know the Lord. Teaching and discipling does not take place, like I said, in a vacuum. It's best done in relationship with one another. Simple church. I mean, just think about it. I really feel that God's moving us into a season of simple church, one that's just marked by worship and relationship, one where we grow and learn how to one another in community better. That we pour into each other and into the next generation. That we see ourselves as a family of God who sees each other and sees each other's needs. And we minister to one another and we just love one another. It's in that relationship that you're going to have those conversations 
that are meaningful and deep, impactful and changing. I can give you a book by Tim Keller. He's awesome. But it, if I give you a book by Tim Keller and I read it with you and I discussed it with you, how much better? Relationship that we would all love the Lord God with our heart, soul, and strength. But that begins with him being first and foremost. Leaving a legacy, making a legacy starts with your relationship with God. What does it look like today? And what does it look like with those around you? Um, will you stand with me in a moment? We're going to take communion. So worship team can come up. But Jeff is going to give you, Jeff Ryback, he's going to come and give you a challenge as I get the table ready. Father, I thank you for this word. And I ask that as we think about making a legacy, that you would help us to be mindful of our relationship with you. Because you want us with you more than anything. And we know this because you've given us a son, Christ Jesus. It's his name we give thanks for the word. Thank you for listening. The Bridge Bible Church stands to exalt the name of Jesus. We seek to be a community that gives glory to Christ above all things and welcomes all people to join us in worshiping him. If you don't have a church home, consider visiting ours. We are ordinary people who want to live life with authentic faith. For more information on how to get connected, deepen your faith, and experience what God has for you, please visit our website at thebridgewire.com.